This podcast was made possible by the ALF Network, with a special thanks to our Leadership Circle members and our 2020 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Aris Communications, Friends of Sing Kung, Friends of Webb McKinney, Lisa and Matt Sonsini, HP Inc., and Deloitte. We thank you all for your support. Welcome to The Dialogue. I'm Suzanne St. John Crane. Uh, just delighted to have you all here with us tonight and to have Eric Ward here. Uh, excited he's, he's not only a, a, a musician, but uh, a bulldog lover apparently too, Eric. Um, my bulldog was just here. <laughs> That's the little distraction I had behind me is he needed to go have dinner. Um, so it's just delighted to have, uh, to have you all here tonight and, and to be able to be inspired by Eric's uh, presentation, his conversation with our senior fellow, uh, Mohammed Chaudhry, ALF board member, Mohammed Chaudhry, and to be in dialogue with you all. Uh, this is truly what I love about ALF gatherings is that it's not uh, talking heads, it's participatory. So uh, we wanna invite you all to uh, be a part of this experience and this gathering in small group dialogues. So with that, I would like to introduce our moderator for this uh, for this convening on building an inclusive democracy, uh, my friend and fellow uh, board member for ALF Silicon Valley, Mohammed Chaudhry. Mohammed, take it away. Thanks, Suzanne. And um, first, I want to acknowledge Suzanne for the great job she's doing leading ALF. You know, the, this will be the final in the series on, as Suzanne shared. Um, on democracy called We the People and the past dialogues. I'm sure you participated in included uh, conversation on equity, conversation on education and various other areas. And also very proud of Akimi, our network weaver, who's doing a great job. Mark Tully's on the line as well as Richard Vega. So a great ALF team that's kind of running the show. I just get to have a conversation with my new best friend, Eric. Um, so looking forward to that. So today we're going to learn from Eric Ward who's a nationally recognized expert on the relationship between hate, violence, and preserving democratic institutions, um, governance and inclusive society. So that may be a mouthful, but Eric will simplify it for us. But I think for us, we we'll wanna explore how each of us can be a part of leading um, an inclusive democracy. And we'll have a dialogue around that. Uh, with that, I want to introduce Eric Ward. Eric is the executive director of the Western State Center, which is a rec uh, he's a nationally recognized expert on the relationship between authoritarian movements, hate violence, and preserving inclusive democracies. Eric brings over 30 years of leadership in community organizing, philanthropy. He worked at the Ford Foundation, amongst other, other uh, places. And he's also the author of mul multiple written works credited with key narrative shifts, including Skin in the Game, How Anti-Semitism Animates White Nationalism. So um, if, if folks are having trouble, what are we gonna talk about? I think Eric is gonna go into white nationalism and actually talk about um, um, white supremacy and some of those concepts as well as we go through this and talk, talk through our, our democracy. Eric is also working on a forthcoming documentary about whiteness 
and race in America, and he's an aspiring singer and songwriter. So, so if anyone, if we get bored, Eric, we'll just ask you to sing uh, under the name <laughs> of Bulldog Shadow. With that, Eric, uh, um, thank you for joining us. I know, I know, it's been hard. We're going to have you live, but I think um, while Zoom fatigue is real, I think um, we're. Very excited to have you here. I'm actually not even in Silicon Valley right now either. So this works out very well. With that, Eric Ward. Such a pleasure, Mohammed. Thank you so much. And, and thank you, American Leadership Forum, Silicon Valley, uh, for inviting me to, to be with you all tonight. It has um, been a, a, a long decade in America. And my father just turned 95, though, often reminds me that it's been a long 95 years um, uh, in America, but it has felt particularly hard in, in this moment. And I want us to be able to just own and acknowledge uh, the, the weight that we have all carried as, as leaders in this moment, whether we are talking about COVID-19, right? And the death of, of uh, today, I think the, the number has now reached 280,000. Uh, Americans in, in the last eight months, whether we are talking about vast unemployment and uh, uh, instability to our economy and, and the global economy, and whether we're talking about political violence in American society, that political violence over uh, between the years 2015 and 2019 have cost the lives of over 200 Americans. Uh, 64 of those Americans were killed by white nationalists, the single largest cause of, of white, of uh, uh, political death due to political violence in the United States during that period. Uh, but uh, in almost equal number were killed by what are called anti-government extremists, which also have their origins and, and roots within white supremacy, which we'll get into a little bit today. How does that compare to the rest of the world? Where, where our political violence has resulted in deaths um, that have increased um, triple in this moment. What we do know is that um, for the rest of the country, violence due to political violence has decreased about 50%. So in the United States, we are actually seeing a rise of political violence, while the rest of the world is actually experiencing a decline. These three things have taken their toll on the American public. And it has been quite a journey over the last few years in this country. We often talk about this as uh, extreme or aberration. But tonight, I wanna talk a little bit about the dynamics of these social movements and their impact on democracy, what I call inclusive democracy, and provide some reflections on ways that I think as leaders, we can step up to preserve the importance of inclusive democracy. By way of definition, when I say inclusive democracy, what I mean is government that is people-centered, transparent, and accountable. In the United States, that is on the foundation of a republic and a democratic republic. 
but it is also upon the aspiration of a multiracial society, a rainbow nation. The idea that all of us, regardless of our race, religion, gender, or ethnicity, have equal opportunities, equal rights, and protections under the law, that we will not be discriminated against because of our national origins, because of disabilities, or other causes, and that all of us have a stake in strengthening our society for the generations to come. This has been under attack for some time now. I no longer have to talk about the white nationalist movement and convince those who are listening that it is a threat. We all have experienced this, whether we are talking about Poe, whether we are talking about the tree of life, whether we are talking about the attacks on Sikhs in Wisconsin or the attacks on Muslims in North Carolina, whether we are talking about African-Americans who were targeted in South Carolina or Latinos who were targeted in El Paso, Texas, or even outside the United States in places like Germany and in places like New Zealand. The list of white nationalist violence over the last four years globally is quite significant, leading many folks to say and suggest that white nationalist violence globally is a significant cause of instability. But where does white nationalism come from? To understand where white nationalism comes from, we first have to understand the concept of white supremacy. White supremacy is a system that has existed in the United States since the Constitution was signed and before. That dates back to the Bacon's Rebellion that occurred in Virginia. It is a moment where indentured servants who were black and who were white joined together with Native Americans and threw out the ruling elite into the bay, right? The ruling elite of the Virginia colony had to flee onto ships. Eventually the British army came and put down the rebellion, tried Bacon, and then hung him as a punishment. When this happened though, those who were managing and trying to organize that society realized something, that they needed to prevent folks of different colors from coming together. And it is actually historically where we see the term whiteness come into popularity into the United States. You see, race has a history. It is not just a system of behaviors. It is a structure, a way of organizing society. This was called white supremacy the idea that folks were superior or inferior based off of skin color. And the binary was black or white. White supremacy was built upon three pillars. The first, the stolen lives and genocide and the capture of resources of native communities. I'm gonna stop for a second and have someone mute. Thank you. The second was chattel slavery, the free and exploited labor of Africans in captivity. It is that exploited labor that directly makes the United States today one of the strongest economies in the world. Hundreds of years of free labor will do that. The third 
was the control of women and the control of sexuality in society. These were three things that allowed society to organize itself. Now, I'm not here to defend that. I'm mainly explaining how the United States was fundamentally organized. I'm also not here to place blame on any of us. None of us were around 500 years ago. None of us were around in 1786. I think that's the right number. A historian will correct me, right? None of us were here to put that white supremacy in place. In many ways, all we are responsible for is its present day legacy, which I'll get to in a second. So here we have white supremacy in this system of exploitation, and it kind of moves along and it ebbs and flows in lots of different ways until the 1960s. And then in the 1960s, along comes this thing called the civil rights movement. And you may have heard of the 1960s civil rights movement. We talk a lot about the 1960s civil rights movement. As a, an activist within the larger umbrella of Black Lives Matter, right? One of the things I really enjoyed circa 2015 where my friends would wear these t-shirts saying, not my mama's civil rights movement, right? And the message was, right, that it was a new day. So I kind of enjoyed and celebrated, yes, it's time to take on new, new problems and new issues. But I also would tease my friends and I would tell them, you're right, we are not our mother's civil rights movement. Our mother's civil rights movement was really badass. Let me explain. Previous to 1968, white supremacy was the rule of law in America. It was de jour. It was the lens upon which we understood our society, whether economically, culturally, or other. Then it was reinforced by this idea of white superiority, that folks with white skin were inferior in every, in, sorry, superior in every way to black folks who were the binary, inferior in every way. But along comes the supposed inferior group of folks who organize and topple white supremacy as the rule of law. Now, I'm not saying white supremacy no longer exists. It certainly is de facto. And as an African-American, I experience it every day. What I'm saying is that white supremacy became contested terrain in America. That was a hard fought challenge in our society. And it was fought by folks who lived under white supremacy as the rule of law. It was quite a feat. But imagine for a second, you're an arch segregationist. Not to be taught to be a segregationist, you're socialized from birth. You don't have to convince yourself. It is like breathing air. You have been raised all of your life to believe that black people are inferior. How do you suddenly explain that you lost to folks you see as inferior in every way. It doesn't make sense unless you are willing to acknowledge that black people perhaps weren't inferior at all. But that's not what happens. As we know, people do not change their worldviews so quickly. But they had to come up with an understanding of why they lost. I don't know if you all have ever failed a test. I've never, never failed a test, ever but I've heard from folks who have. It may be once I've blown a test. And it's interesting 
if you if you do terrible on the test, the first thing you normally ask yourself is, how did that happen? And then of course we spend lots of time thinking about things. And it's funny, the answer is never that I didn't study hard enough or I didn't meet with my professor or I didn't show up for the test review. We usually kind of try to establish, right? Answers that make us feel better about ourselves, that don't challenge our worldview. And so too was it for those who believed in segregation. There was simply no way that they were going to acknowledge that they lost to black people. It was impossible for them to acknowledge. So they needed to find an answer. And it is in that answer that the origins of white nationalism occurred. Here it is in short. White nationalists began to argue that white folks indeed didn't lose to black folks. As we have already argued in their worldview, that was simply impossible. That instead, they drew from something that many of them had experienced in Europe as veterans of World War II, a fake document called the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion was a fake document that was created by Russian czarist police in the early 1900s. Why? Because European royalty was scared and frightened by the arrival of democracy, particularly in France, and were worried about what it meant for their own power and for their own structures. And they wanted to oppose democracy. So in the propaganda room, they took the story and developed a conspiracy. The conspiracy was that Jewish elders had gathered at midnight in a cemetery to plot the takeover of European Christendom, the death of European Christian culture, and that the plot was by taking control of government through democracy, right, controlling the media, controlling the economy, that that's how this conspiracy would take place. But there was also something else very significant about this fake document. It shifted the nature of anti-Jewish bigotry in Europe. Previous to the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, the primary form of bigotry towards Jews in, a, in Europe was a religious and cultural form of bigotry. But the protocols, took Jews from being simply a religious other and made them a racialized other. This was the arrival of white nationalism in Europe. Henry Ford, who was a rich industrialist who invented the automobile, came across the protocols. He was so enraptured by them that he decided to republish them under a series of essays called The International Jew which he sold out of Ford dealerships around the country, exposing hundreds of thousands of Americans to this Jewish anti-Semitic conspiracy. It is that and the veterans that allowed them to cling to a new answer that allowed them to maintain their belief in white superiority. The answer became they didn't lose to black folk that they lost to a global Jewish conspiracy seeking to erase white Christians from America. This was in the 1960s. 
So think about that today when we hear language from white nationalists talking about white genocide, talking, marching down the streets, chanting, Jews will not replace us. These are the origins of that rhetoric. This is also what distinguishes white supremacy from white nationalism. If white supremacy is about a system of exploitation, white nationalism is a system of ethnic cleansing and removal. The goal of white supremacy was to organize and better society through the exploitation of black indigenous and people of color and women. White nationalism seeks to remove black indigenous people of color and Jews from the American politic altogether. One again is about exploitation. The other is about ethnic cleansing. But here is where we often get confused. We carry our own stereotypes in society, our stereotypes about those we disagree with. And we who care about human rights and inclusion often project our own stereotypes. We often see white supremacy and white nationalism has the same thing. Why distinguish against them? Well, we distinguish between them, and I'll share this, because conflating them is like conflating a Big Mac and a cow because they both contain beef. Let's be clear. When you drop your Big Mac on the ground, you do not pick up your phone and call a veterinarian. In the same way, the tools that are required to address white supremacy in America are not the tools needed to address white nationalism in America. One is a system that needs to be shaped and addressed through policy practices. One is a social movement whose oxygen needs to be removed. If white supremacy is written upon the paper of race in America, white nationalism is written upon the paper of anti-Semitism. And that paper of anti-Semitism hasn't just stolen the agency and the legitimate grievances of black folks. Because if you notice, by being able to blame Jews and placing blacks as merely puppets in a larger conspiracy, it means you no longer have to address the issues that the black community is putting forward in the name of equity and fairness in America. But it's not just the black community. As an individual who has organized and attended white nationalist meetings for over two decades, I can tell you that it's not just blacks, but Latinos, Muslims, gays and lesbians, the trans community, and others who are also seen as nothing more than puppets of their quote unquote Jewish masters in this anti Semitic worldview. It is why anti Semitism may prove to be more dangerous to non Jews than the Jewish community itself. Let me give an example. When I started this, I talked about some of the mass killings that have happened by the hands of white nationalists and others. If we look at the killings, the anti-Latino killings of, um, of folks in Walmart in El Paso, 
or the targeting of Sikhs in Wisconsin because they were perceived to be Muslim, right? Driven by Islamophobia. Or we look at the anti-Black killings of churchgoers in, South, in Charleston, South Carolina. Or we even look at the killing of Jews in Pittsburgh. There was one unifying factor to all of those. All of those were driven by the belief that these white nationalists were convinced of that they were in an existential war against the Jewish community. As much as the killings in South Charleston were driven by racism, they were also anti-Semitic attacks. As much as the killing of Sikhs and the terrorization of Sikhs in Wisconsin was driven by anti-Muslim bias and Islamophobia, it was also driven by anti-Semitism. We see that link between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia again, right before the Tree of Life shootings. One of the biggest narratives being promoted by some elected officials in our country was that a Jewish philanthropist by the name of George Soros had woven a conspiracy to, to, um, to um, bring in secretly, right, an invasion force of Muslims into the United States. It was that rhetoric that led directly to the shootings at the Tree of Life. This idea of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism are quite entwined within the white nationalist movement. So what do we do about this? In closing, I wanna share three quick reflections. What we have to understand, first of all, is that white nationalists don't come into our communities bringing racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, or other forms of bigotry with them. They simply organize the bigotry that already exists. If we want to address the white nationalist movement in America, the first thing that we can do that is within our power and choice points is to address the underlying issues that exist in our communities. These white nationalist movements and leaders do not come into our communities to spread hate. They come into our communities to exploit it, to build political power. We should not think of these movements as simply hate groups. That is not their goal. They are political movements that seek political power to transform American democracy right, that has been fought and struggled for over the last 75 years into an exclusionary society that forcibly removes people of color. The second thing beyond addressing the underlying bias in our communities that make us vulnerable to white nationalism is understanding this. Demographic anxiety, the changing demographics in America are a very real issue. And demographic anxiety left unchecked, left unmanaged, gets manipulated by white nationalists. We all feel demographic anxiety. When we walk into a room of strangers, what we are feeling is demographic anxiety, that nervousness, that self-consciousness, that I'm out of my element. Well, white folks living in America in rapid demographic change are experiencing that same anxiety. And they only get two answers right now. The answer from us is that they are racist for feeling that anxiety 
And the answers from the white nationalist movement is that they are feeling it because they are facing an existential threat. Neither of those are effective or useful responses. One leads to the building of white nationalist movements in this country, and the other isolates us from a constituency that white nationalists seek to recruit. We address demographic anxiety by building real racial intimacy. Intimacy is the real threat to white nationalism. We build that racial intimacy by addressing segregation in housing, in education, in employment, and in our social and cultural lives. Building racial intimacy simply means building policies and practices that bring diversity and presence into the rooms and into spaces. And understanding when we come into those spaces, we will all feel that anxiety. But the more we create those spaces and convince people to come in, we will find that they will be able to manage their anxieties. Think of folks who have a fear of flying. The way that we help folks get over their fear of flying is by what? By not telling them to fly? No. By actually getting them on planes and building up the length of the flight time. Because it's not about getting rid of the anxiety but helping people to learn how to manage it and not see it as a threat. The last piece is this. We also have to begin to imagine what our future looks like. I used to often talk about the future as something that was coming, something that was down the line that we all needed to prepare for, something that would be someday for the generations after us. But the truth is, is that the future is here right now. We are standing in the future. What we are facing in terms of the white nationalist movement in this country and others who believe in exclusionary processes and societies is not a rise, but a backlash, a backlash against the gains of civil rights in the society. The way we manage this is by continuing to vision what the future looks like today. The future we envision has to be exciting. It has to hold promise and opportunity. It cannot look like a status quo that is not working for the majority of Americans. And it has to be grounded on one principle. It is the idea of whether you are a 72 year old white male veteran living in rural Iowa or a 16 year old native trans woman living in Portland, Oregon, that both of them and everyone in between has the right to live, love, worship and work free from fear and bigotry. We should be unapologetic about that desire. It is what it means to build a real inclusive democracy in America. And I'll stop here because I know I'm a little bit over, Mohammed. You're doing when great. I was, thank you so much. When I was a kid, we used to play this game towards the end of summer. And it was called If I Were. And If I Were was like this, us sitting in a circle. 
and we'd say, you know, if I were like in the zoo and I somehow got locked into the tiger's cage and the tiger came, you know, was in there, here's what I would do. And as kids, we would argue about what we would do and wouldn't do and how we get out of it. Or if I was driving down the freeway and the brakes went out in the car, here's what I would do. The question that would come up every summer when we were kids though, was if I were in the midst of the civil rights movement, here is what I would do. And as kids, Mohammed, we were full of bravado about what we would or wouldn't do. We didn't understand the choiceless choices of our parents. We didn't understand what it meant to live under Jim Crow, right? Under white supremacy is the rule of law. So we were full of ourselves about what we would and wouldn't tolerate. That question has always haunted me. And then about five years ago, I realized something that I actually didn't have to ask that question. I didn't have to wonder anymore what I would or wouldn't do. And neither does anyone on this call. The truth is this, whatever it is you would have done in the midst of the 1960s civil rights movement is gonna be whatever it is you decide to do on this call tonight. Make it count. History will judge us in this moment. People have laid down their lives over 75 years and longer have been faced humiliation to bring us to this very point. Let's not waste it. Let's understand that we have the ingenuity, we have the passion, we have the knowledge to build the America that we have always aspired to be. And we can build it without leaving anyone behind. It does not cost us anything. Citigroup released a study just recently showing that if we removed racial discrimination in our economy, this economy would gain $5 trillion over the next five years. I don't have to tell anyone on this call what that $5 trillion would mean for this society right now. This is not about scarcity. This is about capturing the abundance of this nation and moving us all forward together. That's what it means to build a real inclusive democracy. Wow. Thank you, Eric. I could hear you speak for another hour. Um, you covered a lot of ground and um, we can keep going, but um, um, you know, I, I saw a couple of comments. One comment is racial intimacy, so powerful. Another person wrote, this is just simply amazing. And there's thousands of others. So those two highlights. So it's really resonating with, with at least the ALF fellows group. Um, I'm gonna ask you a few questions, Eric, just, just to kind of dive in. But before I do that, I'm gonna ask everyone who's listening, please post your questions in the chat and we'll try to pull those in after I ask a few questions and weave those in as well. Um, and try to get to as many questions as possible. And Suzanne uh, St. John Crane is a master at pulling those together and, and synthesizing them so we can ask all those um, questions as well. And I think a couple of people have sent their questions to Kimmy as well. We'll get all those questions. But, but Eric, you know, the, the, the big thing right now is um, when we were scheduling this, we thought the election would be over, we'd have a clear winner, we'd have a concession speech, and uh, we'd be building government right now. We're kind of there, um, but not exactly. You know, the comments that I've heard, one is 
you know, are there 70 million, um, now I can use my terms right, white nationalists in the country? Or how, sh how, should, I, how should I deal with anyone who voted uh, for one side or the other? But more importantly, just sum it up because, you know, some say we live in a bubble in Silicon Valley. Um, tell us what the country's thinking. Where are the opportunities here? Yeah, so um, let's let's dive into those. So first of all, there are not 70 million uh, white nationalists in, in America uh, yet, right? And um, I'd be having a very different conversation with you all if there are. The thing to remember is the white nationalist movement is part of a broader coalition, right? And, um, you know, we hear terms, you know, white nationalism, we hear alt-right, we hear Trumpism. And I think it's important to define those because we're, we're very loose in our definition. White nationalism is a specific social movement that seeks to create an all-white ethnic state in the United States. The alt-right is a coalition that the white nationalist movement built, right, in order to try to wield its power. It made relationships with other conservative movements, such as homeschoolers, folks who are into alternative medicine, gun rights advocates, anti-immigrant organizations, and others. So the best way to think of the white of the alt-right is a broad-based coalition that is made up primarily of white nationalist leadership driving around authoritarian practices and principles. That alt-right coalition was part of a larger presidential campaign that helped to elect Donald Trump, but it was not the most dominant factor. But I think we should not undercut its influence. It was able to influence who was the, United, the president of the United States in this country. That is significant influence that even most human rights movements cannot lay claim to. Now, we should understand lots of folks voted for Donald Trump in lot, for lots of different reasons. Now you'll hear me say that most of that was race-based, but that's because I'm talking about race. You know, racial bias primarily operates in the unconscious level, right? So most folks, even myself, don't know we're consciously being prejudiced unless we're consciously, I mean, we're being prejudiced unless we're consciously being prejudiced, right? Most of it just resides in the part of our unconscious that we're not aware of. So are people driven by unconscious bias in their electoral choices? Absolutely. In the same way that unconscious bias drives hundreds of decisions that each of us make every day. And within that unconscious bias, racism was one of them for sure. So, so Eric, like, help me reconcile, you know, I'm a Muslim. I know you spoke to the faith leaders earlier today of ALF and, you know, Rabbi Aaron and but a lot of other faith leaders on the call right now. I mean, I'll give you the Muslim example. There are some exit polls um, that say, you know, 35% of Muslims voted for Trump. How do I reconcile that or and, and some Hispanics and African-Americans? And, you know, a lot of us have this question in terms of what happened? How, how could they have voted for him? Yeah, well... People orient, so we should know things about authoritarian moments, right? Mm -hmm. Authoritarian moments are quite frightening in a society, right? We are in a moment where folks are not only facing that a fear around being on the out group in an authoritarian moment, but they're also facing the existential crisis of COVID, 
right? And the resulting unemployment. So folks are falling, and I'm, I'm gonna give you a quick answer to this, Mohammed. but the deal is, is this. We should not be surprised that people of color are orienting themselves to white nationalism, nor should we be surprised that white nationalism would open its ranks in a broader coalition. People make all kinds of weird coalitions in terms of organizing for power all the time. When I attended one of my earliest white nationalist meetings in uh, Seattle, when I walked into the meeting, this uh, militia guy came up to me, he saw me, like, a, you know, across, he must have seen me from like 300 yards, right? Weren't a lot of black folks in the room. <laughs> and he came walking up to me really fast and like held out his hand. And he was, you know, and he was, you know, he was excited to see me. I could see he was excited to see me. But I didn't want to break my role. So I didn't put up my hand. And I said, you know, it's nice to meet you. You know, apologies, no offense. But I don't shake hands with white people. Now, that's not true. That was just my story. Without a nod, you know, without like he didn't miss a beat. He nodded and said, he said, I totally understand, right? But I want, I saw you and I'm so excited you're here. Why are you here? I told him why I was there. And he said, you have to come hear the speaker. He spoke this morning, he's speaking this afternoon, and he's talking about the need to reach out, in his words, Blacks, Orientals, and Mexicans, right? That we needed to build, in his words, a broader coalition to take on the federal government, right? So that we could deal with the real enemy. Now, I'm, that, my, yeah. yeah, Eric, on, on that, I mean, I'll give you one, one more question. I know I'm running out of time. I'll give you one example okay. where, where perhaps the current administration got it right from what I've seen, uh, which is the area of, you know, we're talking about religion in various ways, you know, the, the religious freedom. You know, Ambassador Brownbeck is, the, is an ambassador, undersecretary. Um, it feels like this administration got it got that right in some ways versus, let's say, some democratic institutions. I've heard that even the, the, the Obama administration could have done better in that, and they did get it right. So are they trying, or is the, uh, how, do, how do I make sense of that? Yeah. Look, I think that there are a number of different interests within the Trump coalition, and this is why you won't hear me say, um, I, you will hear me say, that I believe that the Trump administration was an authoritarian administration and that there was a specific moment where it chose that path. What you won't hear me say is that Donald Trump or the White House or the Trump administration is a white nationalist administration. It has white nationalists in its ranks, right? It's influenced by white nationalists, but it's actually a pretty broad, diverse coalition. And we just have to remember that not everyone who voted for Donald Trump is a white nationalist. Folks had lots of different interests. And what we know in authoritarian moments, Muhammad, is that stability, right, is the biggest self-interest of all. That folks at the end of the day, right, want stability, safety, and health, right? And if they feel that that's the place that they are more likely to get it, that is the place that folks will lean. And I'll leave with one more piece. We should all remember that one of the things that scholars tell us about authoritarianism is that for most people, life doesn't change very much. That for most people, life goes on. Who it changes for are those who are outside right, of the in-group. What changes 
are attempts to bring democracy and people-centered voice into decision-making. And what changes is the space for political violence. But at the end of the day, you're exactly right. You're, you're dealing with a very diverse coalition of lots of interests. Our role is to draw a moral barrier between those interests, right, and outright white nationalism. That makes sense. And, and Eric, I've got 17 more questions. Maybe we'll do a, a Trevor Noah after hour and we'll continue uh, after the time. We'll come back to that. But for now, I'm gonna switch to some of our senior fellows and their questions. And um, it's easy for me to say, keep it short, Eric, because I've got like 10 questions, but each of these <laughs> questions are pretty loaded as well. So I'll, I'll let I'll you judge uh, how you can how you can frame it. But let, let me let me uh, share the first one. It's from Laura Weaver, who's an ALF fellow um, and a program facilitator asks, can you talk more about how to create racial intimacy while also dealing with the wounds between people, the wounds of white supremacy? It's, um, yeah, so one of the ways that we deal with this really quickly that, so the easy answer is, um, there is no easy answer except to, to consciously, right? Create spaces, right? Where you get diverse folks in the room and then you build a container that allows the awkwardness, right? To not drive people away from coming back, right? So you have to prepare folks and you have to have like hosts, you have to break down the awkwardness of folks. So that doesn't happen naturally for those of us who are super introverted, which is more of the American public than folks like to think, right? So the first thing is to build those spaces intentionally and to test them and don't worry about them being perfect. They don't have to be filled with thousands of people. It can be three people over a dinner table. But each of us as leaders can take that space. The other piece I would just say really quickly, Monica, how do we deal with, um, for those of us who experience uh, forms of, of prejudice and deep systemic bias, how do we carry that load? The first thing I want to say is it's unfair. We have to acknowledge that it's unfair that that load even has to be carried, right? Um, and I understand uh, as, as a black person in America, I understand the rage. I often remind people, right? It wasn't just as a kid that I faced harassment you know, by law enforcement, right? I was physically assaulted and had to defend myself from a police officer who attacked me as a Ford program officer, right? In a suit, right? In Grand Central on my way to work, right? And so it happens every day in America and not just to black folks, right? The indigenous communities in this country, we have yet to keep a single promise, right? All we have kept is death, destruction and exploitation. For women in this society, for Muslims, right? For Jews, I get the fear, but so, here's, here's a hard thing though. Yeah. You can't fight racism without being willing to experience racism. You can't fight anti-Semitism without being willing to experience anti-Semitism. And this is a choice in leadership, right? At the end of the day, we can't build that racial intimacy unless we too are in the room. So what I say is 
let us be the last generation, right? That has to experience that. Let us not leave it for the next generation to have to carry that burden. Yeah, so that's, that's really helpful. Um, and, and like I said, these are complex questions, so there's no simple answers. Let me do this, Eric. Let me read a couple of questions to you, and maybe we can weave some answers. And you know, the chat group is working really well, where other senior fellows are answering the questions as well. Um, but let me, uh, let me read a few to you. One is um, senior fellow Teresa Alvarado asks, it feels like the history of exploitation has now combined the community of exploited as we are now collectively seen as existential threats. How can we do more to support one another as historically marginalized and oppressed people? Another question is from senior fellow Tony Van Winkle uh, from our current ALF class. Uh, what are the strategies to move our collective thinking from scarcity to an abundance mindset? Uh, another question. Um, um, and I'm expecting you to memorize all these, Eric. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> another question uh, from our senior fellow, Chris Benner, um, is I'm interested in your thinking about reparations as we try to build a future of inclusive democracy you're imagining. How do we repair the damage that was inherited from our past? Um, senior fellow, Linda Gold, who's now in Minnesota, asks, the state is 87% white, connection with, let alone intimacy, uh, with people of color has been non-existent for most people she knows there. Where do, where, where do you begin in that environment? Um, then Rabbi Melanie Aaron asked, of the 70 million Trump voters, what percent do you feel are true believers and how many can be pulled to a different view? How can we approach them? Let me just stop there. And I know I've asked a lot. And again, okay. uh, what are, I'll, let you, I'll let you take a few minutes to uh, hit it wherever you want, like. Okay, so first of all, I'm gonna just guess. Now, this is just a guess, right? I haven't looked at data specifically to this, but this is just data that I've seen on uh, social movements historically, right? And the white nationalist movement specifically. So I'm gonna guess about one third of that 70 million are probably what you would call supporters of, um, uh, of at least white nationalism even if they're not, even if they would say, I don't support white nationalism, they likely support the core principles of white nationalism. So meaning, Mohammed, if I asked a third of that 70 million, are you white nationalists? Most of them would say, no, I, I'm actually opposed to white nationalism. If I said, do you think the United States is properly a white Christian nation, right? Um, they would say yes, right? So um, I would say it's probably about a third of that 70 million. Um, and most of them are not conscious, hardcore white nationalists, though the white nationalist movement would like that. Now, the question of marginalization of communities of color and their unifying, I, I want to give, yes, I think folks are working very hard at building alliances. And it's not just folks of color, right? Let's remember, more white people in America today are supportive of Black Lives Matter, then we're supportive of Martin Luther King Jr. in his lifetime. At no time in his life did Martin Luther King ever receive the majority of the white vote, right? And he never even received as much support as Black Lives Matter. So we have to remember something. As we are building our own kind of communities, as we're modeling that kind of unifying community, 
we have to remember that each of us has our own kind of unique history and experience. While anti-Semitism is a form of racism, and I'll actually argue that Islamophobia in America, in the American context, is also a form of racism. Those forms of racism are different than the racism that black and indigenous communities experience in the United States. Now, it doesn't mean that those racisms shouldn't be addressed though, right? Because this is not a hierarchy of privilege, right? Our role is to try to move us out of racist systems into systems of abundance. And a practice of abundance over scarcity is, is simply this, to refuse to believe that we are, should ever be in a position where we are choosing over a slice of pie, right? And as folks used to say, we have to remember, we're not here to argue over pie slices. We are here to ensure that the factory that produces the, the, the pies does so with equity and with opportunity and prosperity, right? And so in the marginalization, in the unifying of communities, what I have to say is we have to be careful that we don't lean into this idea that this is about revenge, right? This is not, you know, I have to say this, when it comes to racial equity in America, the final maturity act, I think, of the racial justice movement that I've been a part of, of all my life is the moment that we realize that ultimately we will never receive the justice that is due to us. It's impossible, right? It is impossible for that to happen. And if that is all we are seeking, we have placed ourselves on a pathway towards revenge that we won't get. At the end of the day, I'm not seeking justice. What I'm seeking is a society that functions upon equity and democratic practice because it is the best guarantee of, of it is the best guarantee of rights. Lastly, in terms of reparations, I would just say that I think what we need is a truth and reconciliation process. I'm not a person who's opposed to reparations, but I have to say, if we're going to start with a conversation on reparations, and we don't start that by centering the indigenous, acknowledging and centering the indigenous populations around us, right? We are merely reorganizing, right, the table instead of building a larger, more abundant table. We cannot talk about gentrification without acknowledging, right, that native people have been forcibly removed from their land, that we are not even upkeeping, we are not even keeping our promises to the treaties we did sign, right? That has to be much part of a larger conversation. If I can say specifically how we get to that, in my opinion, you know, there are folks who've done a lot more thinking. We have to stop bringing people into the room to talk about solutions. We need to bring folks into the room and identify and see if we have alignment on what the problem is. When we can find alignment around the problem, I believe that the solutions, if it is a diverse room of folks, will be in abundance. Wow, um, that, that's 
Wonderful. Thank you for synthesizing a lot of those questions. Uh, you did it. You did it fabulously. And I've got a okay. lot of questions to discuss with you on Islamophobia and many of those topics. But unfortunately, we're we're at that at that time mark. Um, what we're going to do next, Eric, is we're going to break out into small groups. And this is where I'm asking everyone to stay because from those small groups, we'll have some reflections from certain folks as well. But, um, and, and Eric, you're gonna stick around and the most importantly is That's right. we're, gonna, we're gonna come back after that, hear the reflection and we'll hear from you again um, to kind of kind of um, give us some, not solutions, but, but, but um, words of wisdom as we part as well. So I wanna encourage everyone to stay. With sure. that, Eric, are you, um, there we go. Hey, this just magically, everyone appears. Um, great you heard some great com comments from you know, Darcy, Gina, Marcy, Teresa, um, and a few, and, and like I said, a few people said, no, they're ready to hear from you. But hopefully that provides you some context from those small groups. These are, you know, Silicon, one of the great leaders of Silicon Valley who've been working on these issues in one way or another. Um, so at this point, I want to turn it back over to you for about 15 minutes to really share your reflections as well as what advice do you have for us? Yeah, so this is this was very helpful. And I know I was put in a small group, but I didn't want to, um, I felt like since I had spoken, um, it would only not allow that group to talk. So I muted and, and went off uh, camera and, and just let folks have their privacy. It was exciting to hear what you all reported out. So some quick reflections. I, I just want to offer three quick reflections about it. And I want to actually allow, you know, to ask a couple more of, of questions that are out there. The, the first thing I want to say is one of the ways that we can approach this conversation, right? How do we have these courageous, uncomfortable conversations? And it is really focused on building the right container, right? Not the right conversation, but the right container. And there's a difference to that. I don't know if there is a right conversation to be had, except to bring folks in and to say, let's try to understand if what we all think the problem is. The container is about building enough energy and excitement that makes people feel heard, that they're participating, and that there's the possibility, right? Not the reality, because just the possibility that identification of the problem could result in shared solutions. When we do this, the one advice that I would give folks is that we have to remember our ideologies cannot be more important, right, than our values. And we cannot allow ideology to drive conversations at the expense of a value conversation. This is what I mean. I will tell folks right, you know, right openly, I'm a progressive guy. That is my politics. That is my orientation. That tends to be how I see the world. But my ideology doesn't define my values. My values are universal. And I find my values in folks who hold other ideology. And when we put that ideology not away, right? not trying to hide it. I'm not trying to get rid of it. But when I put it to the side in a way that tells folks, I'm not looking for you to adopt my ideology, right? It's not my goal. Not trying to convince you of that. What I'm trying to convince you of is, are you willing to sit down and discuss the problem 
understanding that we will come through it through our values and through our own ideological perspective. So I think that's critically important. In terms of white nationalism versus, not versus, and white supremacy, I think the comment there was exactly right. We spend time addressing white supremacy right, by shifting the focus from personal grievance to systemic change. It's too easy for us to put ourselves in spaces where we're processing what has happened to us personally, rather than what are the structures and systems that made that possible. Not just that I experienced as an individual, but that others experience, maybe not around lines of race, maybe it's religion, maybe it's gender, but moving our conversations from personal grievance to systemic and structural change is critically important. And earlier today, I used the example of Amy Cooper. You all may remember her, uh, Central Park uh, dog owner who called the police on an African-American bird watcher because he asked her to leash her, her dog in a part of the park where the dog needed to be leashed. She knew that she was gonna be angry. I mean, she knew that calling the police for a crime that hadn't been committed, accusing this black man of being aggressive, right, was putting him physically in danger. But she was so worked up that the unconscious bias in her brain was outthinking the common sense conscious part of her brain. Now, we all spent months vilifying Amy Cooper. She lost her job, she lost her dog, and we all got to feel very self-righteous that this was the racist. We weren't the racist. But it wasn't, in, you know, after a while, you know, it all went away. We felt good. We got to get all that energy and emotion out. We got to focus it on something. We got to feel like we put this person in their place. But here's the problem. Nothing structurally changed for Black America from all that energy, all that vilification. Black men still find themselves being racially profiled. Black, black people and Latinos and indigenous people still find themselves being killed disproportionately right, by law enforcement. None of this changed. The real problem wasn't Amy Cooper making that call. The real problem was that Amy Cooper knew she would get this kind of response by making the call. The problem is not Amy Cooper, it is the structures and policy. So that's why it's important for white supremacy. White nationalism is a management problem. White nationalism doesn't go away in America, not in the foreseeable future. But it can be minimized in terms of its violence, right? And in terms of its influence in an attempt to drive communities apart. And the way we manage it is three, threefold. The first is that we address the issues that they are looking to use to use for recruitment. Anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-immigrant hysteria, an attack on democratic practice and democratic small d. The next thing we do is we have a moral conversation around white nationalism. And we ask those who they are seeking to recruit to draw and be clear about their moral lines, right? To have conversations around the morality. Right now in the society, greed seems to be dominant, right? And scarcity seems to be the rule of day. But we never ask folks, are those really the values you want to promote 
in our society? Are those the values we wanna hand down to our children? I think most folks would tell us no. And that opens up the space for us to hear. The third is this, you gotta stop calling folks racist and bigots. It's not helpful. I can tell you the conversation doesn't go very far and we should be less focused, right? On who is a racist and more focused on what is racist? What is the practice we are talking about? How has it affected people? And when we shift it to that level of conversation versus who's a bigot or you're racist or you're anti-Semite, we begin to open up space for possibility. The last is this, trust in indigenous and black communities, right? Their work and their sacrifice and their efforts, even though it wasn't their burden to carry, has pushed and moved this country towards real democracy, a republic that practices real democracy. And that may not seem like a big deal, but I will argue with you, it's one of the most radical notions that has ever existed, right? In terms of governance, the idea that people are competent and creative enough, right? To govern their own lives at a societal level. You should not turn a blind eye to the importance of defending democratic practice, the right to vote, right? Making government address and deal with political violence. And as civil society, right? As the business community, as religious leaders, our voices are critically important. Do not doubt the power of your voice. Three, four years ago, when I talked about anti-Semitism, when I talked about white nationalism, when I talked about the importance of democracy, even folks in the human rights movement would sit there and roll their eyes and say they didn't think it was a big deal. But no one is saying that right now. And it's not just because of my voice. It is my voice coupled with tens of thousands of other voices in a moment in history that cannot be ignored. Your voices are just as powerful, right? We don't have to be Martin Luther King. We don't have to build marches on Washington. It is the day-to-day -day work that makes us a real 21st century civil rights movement. Hey, Eric, can I just ask a couple of questions since you left that door open? Yeah. One, uh, one is from Father John Pedigo. He's asking, what do we do when our legitimate vision has been rejected because it is labeled as partisan? Yeah, we have to return back to our values, right? And we have to understand that in an authoritarian moment, right, authoritarians will politicize everything, right? And it is why we have to keep returning back to our values. We have to understand what our values are and what we believe are shared problems. The other thing that we have to do is we have to understand, right, that we focus all of our energy, right, on, um, I, I, I call it in some ways, so this is, you know, my own Baptist up, upbringing, right? Um, I used to call it the devil theory, right? We spent a lot of time talking about the devil, right? Growing up Baptist. I don't know if there are other Baptists in the room, you may, you may know about that, right? We spent less time, right? Uh, and so we were constantly kind of engaging, right? There's all these conversations and other myths, right? What we tend to do is to pick out the most hardcore population and then focus all of our energy on trying to convince them 
of our worldview, right? Of our standing, of our value. And what we do is because we can't convince the most hardcore, right? We leave the majority, right? That are sitting in the middle untouched. We are having, we are focusing our energies on the wrong constituency. Our constituencies, right? The folks we should be talking to is the big swath of folks who are only merely trying to hold on. And Muhammad, I'm gonna put it this way. Yeah. My dad used to always tell this thing. He used to tell a story uh, and I'm sure it, it has a meaning and it, you know, I, I probably eventually learned it, but it was one of these kind of allegories. He would tell a story about a woman who thought something was wrong with her arm. And so she went to the doctor to see what was wrong. And the doctor told her it was nothing. On the way home, she stopped at the butchers and you know, she was talking to the butcher and the butcher said, how are you? And she said, I'm fine, just came back from the doctor. He said, are you okay? And she said, I think something's wrong with my arm, but the doctor says there's nothing wrong with my arm. And the butcher said, oh, I hope you feel better. But about three months later, she still thought something was wrong with her arm. She went to the doctor. Doctor looked at her arm. He said, there's nothing wrong with your arm, right? Uh, she went, she stopped at the butcher's on the way home. Butcher asked her how she was doing. She said, I still think there's something wrong with my, my arm, but the doctor says there's nothing wrong. Two months after that, she still thought something was wrong with her arm. So she went to the doctor again. And the doctor looked at her arm and he said, look, there is nothing wrong with your arm, right? I don't wanna see you in here again talking about your arm. So she left. On the way back, she stopped at the butcher's again. And he said, how are you doing? And she said, you know, I'm good, but I'm really convinced something is wrong with my arm, right? But the doctor says, there is nothing wrong with my arm and he doesn't wanna see me again. And the butcher said, well, you know what? Since you told me this six months ago, I got a couple of books on surgeries, right? Now I'm not a surgeon, right? but I'm willing to give it a try. And then my dad used to say this. So what does this woman do? Does she keep going back to the doctor who says there's nothing wrong with her? Or does she take a shot with the butcher who at least is willing to help, right? That is the moment we find ourselves in with the majority of Americans. If we do not understand that the majority of Americans are wrestling with demographic anxiety, addressing huge swaths of income inequality and wealth inequality in this society, right? Are dealing with this authoritarian cultural moment, right? That brings out the worst in all of us, right? What are we allowing folks to orient themselves towards? There is a study that was done just well, about six years. Yeah, I, I, got, go ahead. I, I got two more questions and I'm, we're already over time. So can I just oh, go we're over. Really, go really quickly? Um, one is a couple of people have asked about this container that you talked about. What does a good container look like? How do, uh, can yeah. you just share, share a little bit about your experience and I'm gonna, uh, about that? And then I've got one more after that. Yeah, so um, a good container is one, you know, I saw it in some of the values that, that you put forward as the American Leadership Forum. I think ALF is a great container for these types of conversations, right? Uh, the problem isn't containers, it's the level of scale that we need, right? In terms of containers, that's why religious congregations are important, but it is, right? Encouraging people to lean in with curiosity. It is asking them to have courageous and brave conversations. It is asking them to lead with values rather than ideology, right? And it is, a, it is a commitment to at least try to understand and align around what the problem is. 
And the final is this, is a rejection of purity cults, right? Now, we have to understand that any decision-making process is based off of consensus, right? It is about finding, I don't want to call it a middle because I know middle now is, is framed as weak or center, right? But it is finding an agreed upon way, right? Of moving forward. And that consensus, that center, right? Can only happen if we are willing to let go of purity. If we have a hundred, right? barriers, right, or obligations that people must fulfill before we are willing to listen to them. Well, we are only leaving them to the only folks who are willing to listen to them right now, which is the white nationalist movement. And as leaders, our job is to both build marginalized and vulnerable communities and their leadership up, right, and compete for this constituency that the white nationalist movement is trying to recruit we want to compete for it because it is the moral obligation, right? That all people are redeemable, and it's also strategic. So, you know, you know, that was great, Eric. Um, hey, look, I think we've all fallen in love with you. We all want to talk to you daily on this. Can that. you just give us a couple of uh, minutes on what? How do we follow you? What is the Western State Center? You oh, know, yeah. You've written a couple of books. How do How do we keep up with you? Are you a Twitter guy? Are yeah. you an Instagram guy? Or how do we follow you? So uh, when I was seven, I wanted to be a pro wrestler. And my <laughs> moniker was Bulldog Shadow. I decided I never came up with my special move. But um, you can find me on Twitter um, at Bulldog Shadow. Or you can find um, uh, Western State Center as well on Twitter. Um, but Western State Center is a national civil rights organization that is based in Portland, Oregon. Our base work is here in the Pacific Northwest and Mountain States regions, which as most folks know, for all sense and purposes is 90% white. We work to advance democracy through strengthening gender and racial equity. While we are a progressive organization, right? We work with constituencies across the political spectrum. We seek that middle ground. We seek consensus to respond to problems. And what I understand at the end of the day is that anything that doesn't dehumanize human beings is a, is a possible right solution that we need to be courageous enough to consider. At the end of the day, our communities and the generations that come after us and the generations that got us to this point we owe them, right? They are deserving of a commitment by all of us to strengthen American democracy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Thank Eric. You. And I um, really appreciate the conversation. I think we can keep going, but it's a school night. So uh, we've got we've to end it here. But thank you for your time. I think I've heard nothing but great comments in the chat. With that, um, uh, Suzanne, I'll hand it back over to you. I know we're a little over time, but uh, we're going to wrap up for hosting this. You know what, guys? If, for those of you that are senior fellows, you understand now why this resonated so much with us. While Eric's work is just spot on in terms of what ALF does and the courageous, he even used our, our terms, Mac. I mean, I'm hearing courageous conversations, container. I'm like, this is like from an ALF brochure. Dialogue matters. 
dialogue matters. One of the things I'm going to take away right now is he said, you know, we need to stop bringing people into the room to find solutions. And this mirrors our theory you frame of you've got to stay in those difficult conversations. We can't fix it if we don't feel it. We can't feel it if we don't know it. With that, I'm so grateful, Mohammed, uh, Eric, so incredible to have you. Mohammed, thank you for your work. And I wish you all a happy holiday season, however that looks to you. So thanks for joining us. Good night. ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org.